You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. So we arrive at Mark chapter 15, and we come to the end of this year and a half study. Let me read our section as we close out Mark. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 42, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And when Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying one to another, "Who, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they had laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And thus ends the gospel of Mark. Now, if you've been coming to Ascend for a while, or if you're reading your English Bible, you may ask the question, why did pastor just say, thus ends the gospel of Mark, when there's a bunch of verses still in our Bibles? So... We believe this is God's word. We believe it is inspired, infallible, inerrant. It is the authority from God directly using human writers to pen what God wanted to be written. Why then would we not study verses 9 through 20? And so what I want to do before we unpack the verses is do two things. One, at a very high level, explain how did we get this English Bible we hold in our hands. And then second, why am I choosing to not preach on verses 9 through 20? So that first category, let's understand, how do we have this English Bible in our hands? And how can we, with great confidence, say that this is God's word? These are the words that God breathed out through human writers, therefore requiring every human to submit to the authority of these words. And it begins by understanding that every book that we have today that was written in an ancient context is a copy. It is a copy, in fact, of copies. Nobody owns the original Genesis. Nobody owns the original Gospel of Mark. In fact, there is no record beyond the copies of its existence. 
So how can we then, as modern readers of an English version of an ancient text, have a high degree of confidence that this is the very word of God? And that brings us to number two, something called textual criticism. Textual criticism is actually the science of evaluating the copies. It evaluates the every word. It evaluates the uh, age of the manuscript. It compares that manuscript with other manuscripts. It even looks at the penmanship. And it compares all of those copies and draws conclusions on what is accurate. It is an amazing science, and it gives us unparalleled confidence that this book that we hold in our hands is the very word of God. But then there's a third reason we have confidence in this book, and that is the results of textual criticism. Many of you are familiar with Homer and his books, The Odyssey and the Iliad. The Iliad has the privilege of being the second best attested ancient book, meaning that it has the most copies in our modern context of the ancient text, 643 to be exact. But what's fascinating is that the oldest copy of the Iliad was written 500 years after the original book. Now let's compare that with Scripture. 643 compared to 5,000 ancient manuscripts of the original text of the Bible. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not a math whiz, but I think 5,000 is a lot greater than 643. What's also fascinating is that the earliest manuscript that we have is actually within 25 to 50 years of the original book. 500 compared to 25 to 50. Now, taking that 5,000 number, if we also include translations of those ancient manuscripts into ancient languages, now it swells to 25,000 copies. Then if we take the ancient church fathers and their citations of those ancient copies, it swells to nearly 60,000 The Bible that we hold in our hands is the very word of God. Now, if you want to dig into this even more, I'll have the team put three suggestions for you. There's the book by Josh McDowell, A New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It is readable, it is understandable, but it digs even more into this topic of copies and manuscripts and textual criticism. Now, if you want to swim out into a little deeper end of the pool... You can get Leland Ryken's book called The Word of God in English that actually goes through all of the different translations, the King James, the NIV, the ESV, the New American Standard. It is a fascinating book, but it's a little bit deeper. And then if you want to swim out in the ocean, you can read Bruce Metzger's book, The Texts of the New Testament. Friends, this book that we hold in our hands is the very Word of God. So why then am I not studying Verses 9 through 20. Well, here's four evidences that this was not in the original. The first one is, is that as we look at the grammar, we realize that it is not the style of the rest of Mark. And I say this just to share with you the amount of work that goes into preparing a message, not to prop myself up because I need tools. And I, in fact, let me just tell you, I was talking to a seminary student. I was telling him that I translate all of this from the Greek And I was trying to tell him the things that I had remembered from seminary, and he said, oh, yeah, but 
Do you remember this? And I'm like, oh, I forgot that. So I'm not the expert, but I do take every passage in the New Testament, and before I preach it, translate it from the Greek, before I go to commentaries. And as I've done that, I've become very familiar with Mark and his grammar and his style. And once you get to verse 9, that style and that grammar completely changes. That's pretty good evidence. It wasn't part of the original. But then second of all, as you look at what is actually in 9 through 20, you can see that it's just pieced from other gospel accounts and from the book of Acts. And most likely what happened is scribes read verse 8, and you'll see it. It ends abruptly. They said, oh, it doesn't sound good. Let's add what is Scripture in other places and what happened in Acts, and let's try to put it together to make a smooth ending. A third reason why we're not going to study it is that these verses were not in the earliest manuscripts. And a fourth reason is because the abrupt ending fits Mark's style. Mark is very different than the other three gospel writers. In fact, remember back in chapter 14 when he included the young man who ran away poorly clothed? None of the other gospel writers provide that. Mark is in the business of providing twists and turns and surprises for the purpose of his gospel. And so I've drawn the conclusion that Mark originally ended at verse 8, and that is why with confidence we can say the rest of it was not the original but it's found in the rest of the Bible, so that's why we don't throw it out, but we're not going to study it. So we've come to the end. The end of a year and a half journey through the Gospel of Mark. I feel like we're saying goodbye to an old friend, but also asking the question, now what? Now what do we do with this Gospel? Now what do I do as a preacher? I'll be spending the summer praying about it, but there's three books that I'm focused on that I think you'll be excited to hear, but I won't share with you now. But Mark leaves us in verse 8 asking the question, now what? And I would invite you to look at the big idea in your notes. Jesus is the Son of God, and he proves that through his resurrection through his victory on the cross, through his victory from the grave, and what he expects of his followers, what he expects of his disciples is that we proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. So, four characters that we see in this account, as Mark often does, he provides characters showing in their responses both positive and negative ways we are to learn. The first one asks this question, are you disappointed if you are? Stick to what is true. Verse 42 says, when evening had come, and that's a historical signal from Mark to his original audience to remind them of Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. And that is, in the Jewish law, a dead body had to be buried before nightfall. Now, that's in contrast to the Romans. The Romans would leave dead bodies on the cross and allow them to just deteriorate or be eaten by birds or by wild dogs. And once the body got to a place where it was just left to really nothing, they would take those remains, throw them out in a valley, and burn them. So the Jews are left with a dilemma. There's Jesus, dead, hanging on the cross. What are they going to do to obey the Mosaic law with the dead body? Verse 43, it says, Joseph of Arimathea took courage. Isn't that interesting? Joseph of Arimathea, we don't know a whole lot about him. Most likely he was from Ramah, which is interesting. That's where Samuel was from. That's where Jesus or Matthew in Matthew 2.17 said of the death of the kids by Herod that 
a voice will be heard crying in Ramah. So Ramah has a history there. But Joseph from Ramah, he took courage. He asked for Jesus' body. But it also says, Mark includes, he himself also was looking for the kingdom of God. We can imagine he was disappointed. In fact, Matthew 19, or Matthew 27 and John 19 say that he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. So here you have a man who is a disciple of Christ, who is longing for the kingdom of God like so many other Jews, and yet here, the man that he was following, thinking that he was Messiah, is dead hanging on a cross. He clearly was disappointed, but he took courage. One of my favorite recent movies in the Marvel Universe is Spider-Man No Way Home. MJ, one of the characters, says that if you expect disappointment, you will never be disappointed. Maybe you haven't seen the movie, but you get the point. But that's often how we approach life, isn't it? And and why do we approach life? Because life is filled with disappointment. I mean, being a parent and parenting our kids through the early years and the tween years and the teenage years has reminded me, life is set up for disappointment. I know I'm a cosmic killjoy there. But friends don't always respond to you with loyalty. You don't always make the team. You don't always get the grade that you think you deserve because of the study that you put in. Life is filled with disappointment. And then you add to that those unexpected tragedies of death of friends and family members. Unexpected tragedies and difficulties like a worldwide pandemic. Life is filled with disappointment. And if we're not careful, what we often do is we develop cynicism, don't we? We've been filled with a life of disappointment. And so we come to expect it. We come to uh, be cynical. We come to be angry about life. And some of us get to a place where we just give up. And so... When we see a man like Joseph of Arimathea, who is in the middle of extreme disappointment, take courage, we we celebrate that, don't we? We root for him. But Mark includes additional information to remind us that Joseph of Arimathea is just like us because his disappointment was significant. Look at what it says in verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the what? What does it say in the text? The council. Why did Mark include that? Go back to chapter 15 for a moment. Verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole what? Council. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of that council that condemned Jesus to death. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. And and Matthew 27 tells us he did not agree with the decision of the council, but John 19 says he kept quiet for fear of the Jews. You start to see the wrestling of Joseph of Arimathea. So here he is, a member of the group that actually pronounced execution condemnation on Jesus, but he goes to Pilate taking courage. Yes, you can understand why this means he took courage. But then to whom did he go? Well, the very man who, as a Roman representative, condemned Jesus for sedition. Condemned Jesus for claiming to be the king of the Jews. Remember, that was the charge that Pilate put above his cross. 
So here he is as a member of the council saying, oh, I know the council has decreed this, but I'm actually going to give honor to the body of Jesus to a man that you condemned because of sedition. There's great risk associated with this. But then do you remember what it said in verse 42? This was the day before. What does it say in the text? Sabbath. If you touch a dead body, you are now unclean as a Jew. Ceremonially unclean. Verse 46 says that he took Jesus down from the cross, wrapped him in a linen cloth, and became unclean. So here you have Joseph of Arimathea, who is extremely disappointed. He had longed for the kingdom of God. Here Jesus' dead body is hanging on the cross, but he takes courage. And he sticks to what is true. What is true? Well, follow the word of God. He's following the Mosaic law here. What is true? He respected and loved Jesus, so he wanted to honor him and put him in the family tomb. See, friends, in times of disappointment, we don't always have all the details, do we? In times of disappointment, it can be very easy for us to be so self-centered that we become wallowing on our island. The points of disappointment can lead to extremely dark places. And yet, here we have an example of a man named Joseph of Arimathea that despite the disappointment, despite the unknowns, he sticks to what is true. Here's something I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. During times of disappointment, the most important thing to remember is that the battleground is in the mind. Oh, friend, would you please write that down? Listen, this, this, this is gold, and I'll explain to you why this is gold in just a moment from our contemporary culture. We will experience disappointment. We will not achieve the student council positions that we ran for. We will not make the team that we thought we were shoo-in. The boyfriend that you thought will be your, your husband someday will break up with you. This is a life filled with disappointment. And many of those we can just wake up the next day and move on. But some of them have the potential of derailing us. And it's in these moments we have to remember the battlefield is not in our circumstances. It's in our mind. How are we actually processing the disappointment? How are we actually responding to the disappointment? What are the rules of engagement? And I would encourage you to write these verses down. I think they're up on the screen. Philippians 4.8. Paul writing to a group of Christians where great persecution was taking place. Paul writing from a prison himself with an uncertain future, not knowing whether the emperor would give thumbs down his execution, thumbs up his release. Paul is writing and saying, you can actually have joy in all of your circumstances. And you say, Paul, how? Verse 8 of chapter 4, set your mind on the things that are true. That is where the battleground is, and that's where he says in 2 Corinthians 10, we destroy lofty expectations, and we take thoughts captive to obey Christ. Friends, that is where the battleground is. And so maybe some of you are facing disappointment. Maybe some of you have disappointment from your past. But let's learn from the gospel example of Joseph of Arimathea, not perfect, surely, But in the middle of his disappointment, he stuck to what was true. Number two, you ever been dumbfounded? Secure the proper lens. Pilate 
is dumbfounded. It says in verse 44, Pilate was surprised. The word surprise means to wonder or marvel. It is a shaking of your norm that requires and produces a response. Pilate is amazed to get this request from Joseph. Why? Because historians tell us that men could be on the cross sometimes up to seven days before they would die. So so Pilate has moved on to his norm. He knows there are three men hanging on the cross. He knows he has multiple days before he has to do something about it. He's moved on to administration. He's moved on to his governorship. He's moved on to anticipate that the feast of Passover and unleavened bread is about to be done. He's going to go back to his place in Caesarea. He's moved on to his norms, and then his norm is disrupted. How will he respond, appropriately or not appropriately? You see, friends, our norms are often disrupted, aren't they? I wrote this message a few days ago, and thankfully, our weather prophets are still holding to their prophecy. We've had several days, haven't we, of cloudy, rain, cold. Not tomorrow. Welcome back to Kansas. Sunny and 90 degrees. See, see our norm will be disrupted, but, but how we respond will either be appropriate or inappropriate, all depending on our preparation. That's the point. So listen, if this is the first time you've heard that it's supposed to be 90 tomorrow, you've been informed. Others of you watch the news. Others of you have weather apps. You've been informed. And so if tomorrow you wake up and you do what you've been doing, you get out the umbrella, you wear the long pants, you have the long sleeves, you wear a hoodie, you wear a jacket, you don't bring your sunglasses, your norm is going to be impacted and a response is going to be required. If you have prepared, you will have your sunglasses. If you've prepared, you will not be wearing your parka like I've been doing over the last few days. So Pilate has the opportunity. His norm is disrupted. And he begins to investigate. Look at what it says in verse 44. He summoned who? Look at the text. He summoned the centurion. Does anybody remember that Mark has talked about the centurion? Back in verse 39, the centurion was the soldier that oversaw the crucifixion. The soldier was most likely the most senior officer in that cohort. The the centurion was the veteran Roman soldier, and he looked at Jesus, saw him die, and said, truly this was the Son of God. Oh, I would have loved to have known. What were the details of that conversation? Mark doesn't help us. But see, friends, listen, let me just pause. Can I, can I give you a quick commercial? You don't have to have a seminary degree to explore the depths and riches of the Bible. I, I didn't pull out my Greek lexicon to show you this. I didn't look at a biblical encyclopedia. All I did is say, hey, look at this and remember that. You can do this. It just takes some work. So, so Pilate, end of commercial, calls the centurion who has just declared this is the son of God, and he says, is he already dead? And the centurion says, yep, he's already dead. My translation. But look at this. How will Pilate respond? Because listen, Pilate had been amazed at Jesus, hadn't he? He'd been amazed that Jesus kept his mouth shut with all of the accusations from the the council. 
He had likely experienced the darkness that came over the land in the middle of the day. He had experienced the earthquake, most likely when Jesus gave up his spirit. He had experienced some amazing things. His wife came to him, the other gospels tell us, and said, I had a dream. This is an innocent man. Pilate had been given everything that he needed to respond appropriately, but look at how he responds. First of all, it says he granted, which is actually a formal uh, political term. When you in governmental authority are asked by a subordinate for a favor and you grant it, that's what it says. So he's simply doing his governing responsibilities. But then look what it says. He granted to him what? Look, look at the text. The corpse. What's fascinating about this is that Joseph of Arimathea had asked for the what of Jesus? The body. That's a Greek word that could either be a living or dead body. But Pilate responds with a Greek word that can only be dead body. See, tragically, Pilate was given the opportunity to respond appropriately when his norm was confronted. But because he's living in the horizontal, because his glasses are horizontal, when he was dumbfounded, he just acted and responded horizontally. So friend, when you experience something in your life that throws off your norms, the way you can be ensured that you will respond appropriately as God designed you with the satisfaction that God created you to have is prepare the lenses and make sure that they're vertical. Number three, there's more characters in this story. These are the individuals who are depressed. Are you depressed? If you are, stay disciplined in trusting. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. The word saw means to observe critically, continually, with great interest. They're watching the burial take place. Verse 46 says, Joseph bought a linen shroud, which by the way, same word here that is translated linen cloth back in verses 51 and 52 that the young man was wearing. Remember, that means it was high value, high quality. Joseph sacrificed. He bought this high value linen shroud, took care of Jesus' body, buried him in the tomb, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching this intently. Verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went into the tomb. Now, what I want you to see is that Mark is including these phrases intentionally to serve the purpose of the details that he provides. But before we get into that, let me just show you that notice that Mark says on the first day of the week. Let me give you three other passages. Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, and Romans, or Revelation 1 and verse 10. Why do I do that? Because there's evidence from these passages, as well as the resurrection, that that is why we are doing what we are doing this morning. 
is that Christians for all generations since this glorious day have gathered on the first day of the week. And the earlier the better to show that it is a priority. But, but, but he says that it was very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went into the tomb. One commentator says, sleep often escapes the grieving. Isn't that true? How many of you that have experienced intense grief in your life have slept like a baby? No, you sleep after you can finally fall asleep and then you wake up in the middle of the night and you realize reality and you cry and you sob and you struggle getting back to sleep and then you finally fall back to sleep and then somehow you get awakened and then you remember your reality and you grieve and you sob and then finally you just say, well, I'm just gonna stay up. That's what was happening to these women. Morning after Sabbath, very early, just as the sun was coming up. Grief escapes Sleep escapes the grieving. So we can conclude that they were depressed. How? Let me give a definition up on the screen. This is from psychiatry.org, so it comes from a secular medical perspective, but it's helpful that as we think about depression, as we look at articles, and as we hear people talk about being depressed, this this is a definition that is likely informing what they're talking about, and that is depression causes feelings of sadness or uh, sadness with the loss of interest in activities you once enjoyed. Depression can lead to a variety of emotional and physical problems and can decrease your ability to function at work and at home. Some of you might have experienced this in the past. Others of you might be experiencing that right now. There is reason for you to have sadness. And that sadness just seems to, seems to be, you wake up with you. And that it seems to be the weight that you have to bear during the day. And it influences the way that you look at life and your motivations and the way that you respond to life and, and the way that you can even do work and the way that you can even function at home. And so these symptoms are real. And that's what these ladies were experiencing. But it's not unique to our day, although it's extremely prevalent, isn't it? I have an SBC Global email. I don't even know if people know what that means anymore. But that means I have to log into Yahoo, or at least it used to be Yahoo. And what happens on that landing page is it gives you the headlines for the day. And I've been noticing over the last six months that a lot of those headlines talk about suicide, talk about death, And so I'll read those as a pastor trying to learn about how humans are processing life. And almost every one of those articles includes the word depression. Friends, we live in a sin-cursed world. Of course, there are going to be reasons and influences for our sadness. These women did not expect the resurrection. You see this. In their response, it says that they woke early and they were simply going to anoint Jesus to be able to put spices on him to help distract from the odor of a body deteriorating. That's what would happen with these tombs. And, you know, I often wondered when I went to Israel, why would they have one family tomb? And the reason for that is because they would put the body in the tomb to give it the amount of time before it would just be bones. And then they would go in and they would take the bones and put it into an ossuary. 
And so this is the normal occurrence. This is how you honor somebody that you love. And they wake up early and they go and they buy spices. They had to plan for that, but they didn't plan perfectly, did they? Because verse 3 says, they were saying to one another, it's in the imperfect tense, meaning this was a continual point of conversation. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone? See, they're, they're not thinking resurrection, but they are thinking discipline and trusting. They knew that it was appropriate to honor their rabbi. They knew that they loved their rabbi. But look at their reaction to what took place. Verse four, looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. And Mark adds this aside. He says it was a very large stone, meaning one person could not roll this thing away. And the women are amazed at that. And then they step into the tomb and they see a young man sitting to the right and they see that his clothing is white and the other gospel writers say it was actually blazing light. One of them says it was like lightning and it says at the end of verse five, they were alarmed. That means they were crippled. That's what happens with depression often, doesn't it? I'm sad. Can't even get out of bed. Can't even do life as I normally would. These women have moved from a place of, okay, we're gonna take steps forward, and now the details that they give at the tomb, or that they receive at the tomb, gets them to a point of even being crippled. But look at what the angel says. Do not be crippled. Do not be derailed, do not be alarmed. You are doing the right thing. What are they doing? Look at the text. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Friend, listen, the the greatest medicine for depression is this right here. Seek Jesus of Nazareth. You may say, well, I don't understand all of the ramifications of that. Neither did they. They didn't know that he could be resurrected. All they knew is that he was Jesus of Nazareth. They had followed him in Galilee. Verses 41 and 42 tell us. Or 40 and 41 in chapter 15. They were staying disciplined. They were trusting. But then the angel gives them what they need. Look at this. He was crucified. That is true. But he is not here. He is risen. The most glorious words that those women could have ever imagined hearing. And look at their response. Look at what it says in the text. He is risen indeed. That's what they said, isn't it? Remember, we say that on Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That's not what they said. They were not expecting that. They were alarmed. They were depressed. But they stuck to the disciplines of trusting. They were coming to anoint. They bought the ointments. Friends, let me just pause and say here before we hasten to move on to number four. Depression is real, and there are circumstances that influence your sadness that might feel unique to you. But the first step to getting to a place where even in the midst of your suffering, you can actually have joy is to live out 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Would you write that down? One of the greatest prescriptions For depression is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no trial, there is no suffering 
There's no temptation that is in your life, but such is common to man. One of the greatest lies that we tell ourselves in our times of depression is that what I am going through is absolutely unique. Nobody else has experienced this. And friends, listen, depression started all the way back in Genesis 4. You can write down Genesis 4 and verse 6. Cain and Abel both offered sacrifices. God accepted Abel's, did not accept Cain's. And the Lord comes to Cain and says, why is your face downcast? Literally in the Hebrew, why are you depressed? The, The Psalms have many Psalms that are depression Psalms. David is sad. In fact, he's so sad that it's influencing the thoughts that he has. It's influencing his motivation. It's influencing his ability to be a king. Depression is all throughout the Bible. In fact, listen to 2 Kings 7. Elisha, when Jezebel put out a warrant on his head, found himself in a cave. And what did he say to God? I'm the last one of your servants left. This is the human condition. What these women are experiencing is what we experience, but the greatest temptation that we have in our times of depression is that it is unique to me. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, listen, the, the, the combination of the details might be unique, but what you're going through is not unique. It's common to man, but God is faithful. He will not give you something that you aren't equipped to endure. That's important. It doesn't say in that that there's no trial that is overtaking you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful. He will end it and make your life comfortable. Don't we wish that was what it was? No, we don't. That would not conform us to the image of Christ. What God promises is you have everything that you need to be able to endure. To be able to go through it. To be able to experience it. How? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through seeking Jesus of Nazareth. So that's where it begins, beloved, is that if you are in a place of depression, if you struggle with depression, own 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and seek Jesus of Nazareth. But listen, Galatians 6 also tells us there are times in our lives when we need help. Galatians 6 is fascinating. In verse 2, it says we must bear our own burdens. And in verse 5, it says we must bear one another's burdens. And that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? What Paul is saying there is that there are plenty of things in our lives, like a heavy backpack, we are responsible to carry ourselves. And we live in a day when if anything gets heavy in our lives, we're like, oh, get rid of it. I shouldn't have to bear it. Paul says, no, 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 the human life is you're going to have heavy backpacks, but there will be times when the boulder is so heavy you need help. And that's where the body of Christ comes in. And this is what I wanted to share with you, is that, friends, if you have, are, or think you might struggle with depression, we offer counseling. The counseling that we will offer here will ask you questions. It will help, they will work to understand what you've been through, what you're going through what you're fearful of for the future, but here's what I promise you this counseling will do. It will point you to seek Jesus of Nazareth. And listen, what that will do is it probably won't change your circumstances. It may not even numb the pain. 
But it will, what it will do is help you in your disciplines in trusting. And that is how you get through it. That's how these women got through it. So friends, are you or have you ever been depressed? Stay disciplined in trusting, which moves us to number four. Are you dedicated? Would you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ? If you are, then spread the declaration. Verse 8, and they went out and fled. What a great start, isn't it? The, the angel had given them instruction and said, listen, he's not here, he's risen. So go, action, tell the disciples and Peter. That's a fascinating phrase, which likely just drew the attention of the early church that Peter was considered the leader of the early church. But tell the disciples and Peter to go to Galilee because just as Jesus promised back in chapter 14, verse 28, he is going ahead of you and will meet you there. Go, flee. Verse 8, they went and they fled. But that's not the whole story, is it? You know, the gospel of Mark has served us to help us with expectations, hasn't it? Expectations of who Jesus is, how we become disciples of his, what authenticity looks like, and then what is expected of us. That is what the gospel of Mark is about. And friends, expectations are in our lives everywhere, aren't they? Parents to children, how many of you, don't raise your hand, especially on Mother's Day, how many of you grew up in a home where you felt like you could never live up to the expectations of your parents? Maybe you've experienced that on a ball team. You did your best. You worked hard, but you felt like you never could live up to the expectations of your coach. How many of you have had academic experiences where you felt like you could never live up to the expectations of your teacher? How many of you in the workplace have had a situation where the expectations of your employer seems like you can never meet them? Expectations are everywhere. They're also in the church, aren't they? And see, if we're not careful, we can have a misunderstanding of proper expectations. On one side of the coin, we can have expectations of perfection. We may not say that. We may not desire that. But anything less than perfection, we're correcting. And any success, we're not celebrating. That can happen in the church, too. But then on the other side of the coin, we can be influenced by our culture today with expectations, and we can just say, hey, you do you, I'll be me, and let's not bother each other. That's not right either. And what Mark has been doing is he's been managing our expectations in four ways, and we're going to sum up the gospel of Mark as I conclude. Number one, expectations begin with the reminder that Jesus is the Son of God. It began back in chapter 1, verse 1. Mark said this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we've seen that come over and over again from his baptism to his transfiguration to the response of the demons to Jesus' response to the high priest, are you the Son of the Blessed? And he said, I am. Mark has been sprinkling this idea of Son of God throughout the entire Bible. But listen, the phrase Son of God is less about his divinity and more about his humanity. Have we not seen clearly that Jesus is God? I mean, the man spoke and people were healed. He spoke and demons were cast out. 
He touched a leper, and instead of him becoming leprous, the leper became healed. He is God. He spoke to a storm, and the storm stopped. This is God, clearly. But the point of the phrase son of God is that he's also the only human being who ever fulfilled the expectations of God for the son of God. That he would live out and fulfill the expectations perfectly that he would experience the most intimate relationship of obedience with God the Father. He is Son of God. He is creator. He is God. He is true Israel. He is the substance of the shadows of all of the Old Testament. And because of that, beloved, he has the right to establish the standards and the expectations. The expectations of discipleship begin by recognizing Jesus is the Son of God. Number two, To be a disciple of Jesus Christ requires us to follow him. Remember back with Peter, James, John, Andrew. Remember back with Levi and Matthew. Remember back in chapter 15, verses 40 and 41, the women followed Jesus. It requires following. And listen, following is a surrender. Following is submitting Following is transferring allegiance to this Jesus, the Son of God, asking him to forgive your sins, committing your life to him as your king and as your Lord, and living out a life of submission and serving and worship. That's how you become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to number three. Mark has showed that true disciples will demonstrate authentic And what does that mean? That means you study God's word and you understand it. You study God's word and you live it out. Even if you don't have it all figured out, even if there's a a lot of unanswered questions, but it also reminds us that just because we are saved does not mean we are perfect. Look at these sweet women in verse eight. They went out and they fled, good start, But trembling and astonishment seized them, and they said nothing to anyone. Why? Because they were afraid. And this is an abrupt ending. And there's not a great commission here. There's not an apostle who says, listen, I was writing this, and I'm writing it so that you believe. It just ends, and these women fail. At least here. Mark is providing that purposefully. Because he's reminding us, other than the perfect Christ, all of his followers are imperfect. Man, haven't we seen that? Peter's imperfect. The disciples are imperfect. The the young man wearing the linen cloth is imperfect. The religious leaders are imperfect. Pilate was imperfect. The crowds are imperfect. So much imperfection. But if you follow the perfect Christ, you will demonstrate authentic. Friend, may that be our reminder every moment of every day we are desperate for the perfect Christ. And the closer we get to him, the closer we follow him, the closer we value him, the more we will demonstrate authentic, which brings us to number four. While Mark leaves us with this tension, the other gospel writers do not. After they were seized with fear and trembling, they actually did tell the disciples. And the ripple effect is why we are here this morning, which is number four. We declare it. All the way back in chapter one, verse 15, Mark says that the message that Jesus was proclaiming is the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And if you're thinking only horizontally, what, what you would think is exactly what the Jews thought. And that is, oh, kingdom, he's setting up a throne, he's going to defeat Rome horizontally. This is what we expect. But God does not define things horizontally. He defines them vertically. And what he was telling us is the kingdom has begun and one day it will be completed. And we still live in that tension, enjoying our citizenship in heaven longing and proclaiming to others to join us in the citizenship and longing for that day when he will dwell with us and us with him in the new Jerusalem forever and ever and ever. This is what Mark wants us to live.